these right here, so. Oh, we topped Whoa. it. Whoa, Cole topped it. Okay. Ready to go? Yeah. Oh, we shanked it. Oh, look at that line, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, boy, is he on the sink. Welcome to the Bogey Boys podcast. You're joined here by Kevin and Mark, and we've got a special guest, Mr. Sean Bailey. How's things, brother? Very well, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for the invite. Nice yeah. formal introduction, that one, eh? Well, I just felt like I was just in the mode of like where <laughs> I usually am, but it's, this is only our second live one of these, so it feels a bit... feels oh. mad that you're just there. More pressure live. <laughs> pressure, yeah. A lot yeah. of pressure. How are we, Sean? Okay. I'm all right. Probably your faces are lighting up the room with how much pressure in there, but above yeah, pressure no. issues. <laughs> no, it's all Red good. Face. It's all good. I'm really happy for the invite uh, to come on to your podcast. No, no, no it's good. We um, only recently met, didn't we, over the, the clothing, bit of backstory. Obviously, Sean's the PJ professional, head professional at Will Golf Club. Um, and obviously, as everyone knows who listens to the podcast, we've got the appear on clothing now, and we've um, we started stocking in your, in your store, haven't we? And obviously built up a good relationship since then. Yeah, I mean, you guys approached me. We put that in the shop about a month ago. Huge success. Yeah. Uh, huge interest. We've got it out on social media and just really promoted the brand. And part of that was finding out about Bogey Boys yeah. and seeing if we can give a different story maybe yeah. of my involvement or my journey through the PGA uh, and into golf and uh, what we currently do at Whittle Golf Club. That's I was it. Just, I, was really, I was just thinking back to that day when we first met you and like, you was like, oh, well, I've got the stock for this year. And I was like, well, we've got it in the car there, you know, if you want me to go and get it. And you were like, well, you cheeky bastard, you've got it in the car. It's like being down on the edited market. So something wrong to be fair, I thought. Will you yeah. take this place? Yeah. If you can't trust these boys, have the boot if you can. Who can you trust? The world's exactly, in a sorry yeah. place if you can't trust the fellow scouts. Oh, okay, exactly, well, yeah. No, but like anyone who listens to the podcast know we do a professional route. So obviously part and parcel of getting your honest to understand your story and your, your journey to to where you are today so if we just went back then obviously to where it all starts for you when was you introduced to golf how was you introduced to golf and when did you start picking up the clubs well i had a probably a very strange experience with golf my, my father played golf not to a great level he was a he was a docker down in garston for for 40 plus years but just liked golf he liked organizing things more than anything else so he was a member at uh, Dudley Golf Club, which plays out of Allerton. I remember, was, yeah. remember yeah, I was a member yeah. at Allerton Juniors when Dudley were there, yeah. Well, well, Dudley was there. There's actually a trophy uh, named after my father called oh, the Ivor Bailey Memorial Trophy, which oh. the juniors still play for to this day, and that's my old man. Brilliant. Nice. Uh, my older brother was uh, was a very good golfer, uh, and he, uh, he went off caddying on tour 30-plus years ago and still does that. So the family... Father and, and, and older brother were always into golf. I had no interest whatsoever in golf. No. Uh, I was going to be a footballer. Uh, worshipped Liverpool Football Club as a child. Worshipped Alan Hansen growing up because that was my position. Uh, and was half decent at the game. You know, I played representative football from the age of nine, playing for Liverpool schoolboys at Penny Lane, where they used to have their grounds for Liverpool schoolboys. So my big passion was football. And uh, that's all I ever wanted to do. You find that as a scouser, don't you? Like a lot of us, I was the same with Evertonians, unfortunately, for you. <laughs> but, no, I nearly the, cut the whole thing off then when you started talking <laughs> about Alan Hansen. To, to be fair, a few years later, the story gets better. I, I do end up at Everton Schoolboys, so you'll be happy in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, though, as, as young scousers, we all played footy, didn't we, really? Um, and obviously, like you, I, I grew into golf just through family playing it. 
um, you were the same way, aren't you? Kind yeah. of footy first and then move into golf. It's, I know obviously now it's different because there's a lot of younger lads and a lot, a lot of academies set up around the area, so it's easier for the younger people to get access into the golf. But I think you're right with golf. I think normally there is a family member, whether that's an uncle, whether it's a grandfather, obvious ones being your parents, but I think there's a there's definitely a family connection. It's quite unusual for a kid of eight or nine just to suddenly decide, hey, I want to play golf yeah. with, with no exposure to that Yeah, uh, that goes on. And particularly now with, with golf only being on pay-per-view, you know, I'm from a generation where it used to be on BBC with Peter Alice, so yeah, you yeah. still had a little bit of an option for free. Yeah. But then again, there was there was only three channels when I grew up. But, yeah. <laughs> I know Showing you... your age now. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. I'm all right, son. I know you... <laughs> I know you'll probably come on to it later, but you obviously you, you mentioned before we come on here about having a connection with the schools. Are you seeing anything growing in the in the school area with like physical education with golf? I think we've done a couple of incentives locally around the Birkenhead area, uh, but unfortunately, uh, although kids are exposed to it, they'll still try. I still think golf's one of them sports. You go home, tell your parents you've tried golf. Well, nobody plays golf in our family. Neither will you. I, I do think you need somebody to take you there you know it's it's not football where we all grew up kicking a ball around the streets we only need one ball for 10 20 of us yeah you, you need your own sticks don't you yeah you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big startup and like you can buy a huge. ball for a tenner and you can have a knock around as you say with 20 people to start golf really like obviously it's getting more accessible now and there is a lot more different pathways and all these like renting clubs and growing out of them and you get the next age and all that but as you said before like if your granddad's got a set of clubs no matter the length of them you just have a swing of them don't you then yeah get, it's, to, it, get the bug i think that's the reason why it's still being classed as a very middle class game yeah you no, know it really doesn't sense. go out to the masses like football like rugby which are still prone to mass numbers because it's cheap that's and that was, the reality of it yeah and that, that was one of our passions for, for starting the clothing brand it was to like we've spoke to you about this, haven't we? To create like an ecosystem in golf, get an academy, you know, get people off the streets in the community into the game, educational pathways, and, and doing all that. And we're really passionate about that with the brand and yeah. trying to drive that story forward. So, yeah, that's obviously one of the reasons why I asked the questions about the schools and obviously what what the schools are doing because it's one of the passions that we want to sort of look into in the, in the future as the business grows. Well, back onto you then. Obviously, football then. Um, when did it turn to, to golf from football? When did it turn to Everton first? <laughs> yeah, fair enough, yeah. Well, I, I was obviously a half-decent footballer. And then, because Everton, uh, in my youth, came knocking on the door to, to sign some schoolboy forms, which still to this date, a lot of football teams do. They go and sign up the masses on the pretense that one may come through. Yeah. So for me, I always tell, you know, uh, uh, one of my old roommates, Billy Kenny, and then in later years, Tony Grant. Both went on to play first-team football for Everton. So they yeah. were my sort of era who I grew up playing junior football with and, and throughout them. So, yeah, my, my path was really to be a footballer. Uh, then I got released by Everton because I just simply wasn't that good. You're good, <laughs> but you're not that good. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, you get to a point where you don't want to admit that. No. But unfortunately, you're not. So I got released. I, I went over to uh, Blackpool, you know, so you drop down a, a, a few leagues you know, whatever league they were in, because I only knew Blackpool for the tower. Yeah. Uh, ended up up there. And then I ended up with a bit of a health issue. Uh, I ended up with a heart problem. Uh, so I, I ended up being quite poorly in my later teens, early 20s, and ended up with what now kind of moment. Okay. Uh, so uh, a pal of mine uh, got me a job in a golf shop as a short-term sort of solution of 
you talk a lot. We think you could sell. Why don't you just come and work in the golf shop and see how it goes? And bizarrely enough, that a rep came in after about a month, uh, and it's a shoe brand that doesn't exist anymore. Again, show my age. Uh, it, it's a shoe company called Stylo. And the rep came in and said, oh, are you studying to be a PGA pro? Is that your goal? I said, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, even, I, well, I, even I, when you're in the shop, I yeah? don't know what that means. Wow, okay. And he went, well, you know, you're good enough to play golf. How old you, are you? I'm now, I'm now 22. Okay, yeah. So uh, for a lot of people studying their PGA, I'm, I'm, I'm old again, yeah. which is really the reoccurring theme I'm getting from this podcast is my age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so the rep says to me, why don't you make some inquiries about becoming a PGA pro? So again, I, uh, I went through the yellow pages again, kids, that doesn't exist anymore. You just Google everything. <laughs> and I, I spoke to the PGA to see what criteria I needed to become a PGA pro. And that was, you need so many GCSEs, English match. You need to have a playing ability of four or below at that time yeah. to, uh, to enter the PGA training course uh, had all them in place so then started applying for jobs at a golf course where i could start my pga training so Which you would have four and you didn't know what pga pros were i didn't really like golf that much but you were still have four yeah you're just naturally good at it yeah it's a bit annoying <laughs> <laughs> i'm understanding at this point that i won't be well liked that yeah never took a golf lesson in my life uh just used to go out and figure stuff out and just played the game. Do you have any regrets about that, thinking of how naturally good you were and if you would have like got some lessons or maybe applied yourself to the sport a bit a bit more seriously that you could have had a go? I mean, maybe. But as I said, for me, football was the yeah. that was the thing. So through my informative years where you think you can make it, football was the only option. And then when football then wasn't the option, golf just sort of stumbled on it. But the thing that excited me was through the PGA, I could I could coach people, and I had a re- real passion for helping people. Yeah. So although I realised, and I, and I do think maybe a few PGA pros might disagree with this point, but we get into a we're in a really weird position when you're a PGA member. We're really good compared to most, but we're just not that good compared to the ones who make it extortionate. Yeah. Living out of prize money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there is a huge gulf between a Jordan Spieth and us guys, but then there's a huge gulf between us and the rest of the golfing population. Yeah. Well, uh, it is it. That's the elite you're talking about there, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Not many people are as good as them at any level. Even the pros who are playing day in, day out and trying can't, exactly. can't reach those levels, can they? So Yeah. So, so for me, the jump into the PGA was purely to coach golf. Yeah. That was the passion. Uh, didn't particularly want anything to do with retail or just being around that i knew i could still play a little bit north region and be competitive and have been but i knew it wouldn't be a a, a career where i could make enough prize money to stand on your own two feet so coaching was always going to be the passion the daily driver the daily income if you will would always come from that where did you take your first job then as a pj pro uh, I got offered a job with Malcolm Harrison at Heighton and Prescott. Right. Uh, so I took up his kind offer, a huge salary at that point of a, a pound an hour. Because it, was be- <laughs> it was before minimum wage. Can't even get a Mars bar for that these days. Uh, well, you can't in my shop. 
it's getting them back. <laughs> yeah, keep going to B and M to buy the family packs. <laughs> but uh, Malcolm gave me my first breaking golf, uh, and from there just went through the PGA training, uh, yes. completed that, uh, and then took up a job in Italy. Okay. Uh, just always wanted to go and work in Italy, like the clothes, like the food. Didn't know anything about wine, so couldn't throw that into the list. Uh, so got a job in Northern Italy and went over there full-time coaching. And what was the language um, barrier like there? Interesting. Uh, very interesting. And I think we had a little chat before we came on air today about how lazy we can be yeah. being English. You know, the whole world speaks English. Uh, but being the only Englishman up a mountain in the Dolomites means you've got to go in and go in hard and, and get on with it. Yeah. Uh, I know it did sound like the Frenchman from a lower low uh, in my head anyway. <laughs> well, that's it though. Like we were talking off here before, but like when your back is against the wall, that is when you, the true learning comes out because you've got no other choice. Like you either speak Italian or you don't speak to anyone. Yeah, and for the first month, I don't think I did speak to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, had some interesting conversations with myself, lost a few. But you're right. I think, you know, that necessity to learn bears out of I've got no other choice. Yeah. Uh, so you just muck in, get on with it. And I think what I found is most people were very supportive and helpful if they, sh- if they see that you're willing to give it a go and not just back away. Yeah. And that's where the wine came in. I always found after a deep glass of Barolo, the Italian definitely flowed a bit more. The hand <laughs> gestures became more extravagant and a little bit more confident. A good shot. It was a lot of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how did Italy come about? Did you just literally just go or did you have it all in place or what? Uh, it, it wasn't all in place. Uh, what happened for me is the same guy that gave me a break into golf which was Malcolm Harrison he'd actually took up an opportunity in Italy uh, so I'd kept in touch with Mal uh, with the proviso of when you get qualified give me a call there'll oh, be a nice. job for you yeah so like anything in life connections building up rapport with people yeah. staying in touch with people the golf industry is a sm- very small industry yeah you know just be nice to people yeah. <laughs> you might get an opportunity you might get a break the more people who think favourable of you might just open a few doors for you. And how long, how long was you over there for in Italy? I did two years. Two years. Uh, what did you um, What did you find the culture was like golf as a golf world compared to over here in the UK? Because if you look at the top level, now you've got the Molinaris and Migliosi, and there's a couple of other good Italian amateurs coming through. But when you compare it to like the UK, there's not as many in numbers, is there? No, golf is. Uh, 240 golf courses somewhere around that number in the whole of italy okay uh i worked in an area primarily after a move from the north in a place called abruzzo abruzzo is bigger than lancashire and cheshire put together and has 27 holes of golf in that area right wow. okay so and to play golf you are not from a, a an average background expensive yeah yeah, yeah. very expensive. expensive you know it's just people with money people with professions play golf right not your normal folk like me from a working class background i wouldn't be able to have the opportunity although the italian federation have a lot of incentives golf is a long way down their list obviously the more famous for football yeah. uh, it's a national sport very passionate about their ferrari team 
when it comes to F1. The country does close down on a Sunday afternoon when that's on. But volleyball, tennis, a lot of beach stuff because of the climate, particularly in southern Italy. I mean, there's some great you know facilities over there. But even as a tourist destination, a lot of us Brits would still go to Spain or Portugal for our golfing needs. Yeah, of course, yeah. Just because the plentiful, uh, a lot of the Italian, unless you're around Rome and Milan, there isn't another golf course, you know, five minutes up the road. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, it, it's just not as populous uh, yeah. over in Italy. Mine when, was just more for the experience of the culture and a life choice yeah. more than the popularity of golf. Yeah. When you're talking about that place that's got 27 holes, is the... Obviously, the supply and demand is—is is it there or is it not there? Is what's the membership sort of fees like at a course like that? Is it uh, oh expensive? Yeah, I tens of thousands. Wow! You, you buy the bench for the golf course, right, so okay. you buy into the golf course for somewhere. I'm going back maybe twenty years ago since uh, wow. since I moved back, and it'd be a good twenty thousand euro that you would be putting into the club. Wow! Uh, just to be involved in it. Yeah, but it was seen as more, it's more exclusive. That's unfortunately the word that we come back to a lot in golf. Yeah. But yeah. particularly in that part of Europe, I think if you look at Europe as a whole, we're actually very cheap in the UK to play golf. Yeah. You know, if you look at tee off times where you can go onto hot deals, you can pick up even private members' clubs for just over £20 for a round of golf. Yeah. Whereas we know all around Europe, you know. Nobody's paying much less than 80 euros unless it's on a twilight. Yeah. You know, so we are very cheap in the UK, but we have over 3,000 golf courses in the UK. So supply and demand. Yeah. We have a lot more golfers, a lot more courses, a lot more choice. Yeah. And that drives the price really only one way. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's good for us, like, isn't it? It is. So well, what goes on after Italy then? Where did you. And why did you come home? Uh, I, I came home mainly because it was too quiet. As a first option, I enjoyed the culture for two years, but it, it was just too quiet. Uh, and unfortunately, I had a father who had just started with Alzheimer's. Oh. Uh, I didn't really want to be 2,000 miles away from him, yeah. uh, particularly in the early day stages when we had to do a lot of things like find them a nurse and home uh, and stuff like that. And also as well, uh, just to go back a little bit, you know, because it was just me and my dad. Because uh, unfortunately, I lost I lost my mum when I was really young. Yeah. So particularly with my dad, I, I just didn't want to stay that distance away from him. Yeah, of course. So uh, it did really cut the Italian adventure a little bit short. You know, the heartstrings were sort of pulled. Yeah. So I managed to get a job uh, in the uh, in Watford. You know that northern powerhouse uh, <laughs> of Watford. I could find a job back in the UK, but I was working for a golf coach called Scott Cranfield. And Scott Cranfield was a European tour coach at the time who had 12 golf academies all through the south of England. So it gave me a really good structure uh, on really to develop my own ethos with coaching. Uh, so spent a little bit of time down there and then just edged myself back up north, particularly as my father's sort of progression through the horrible thing that is Alzheimer's. Yeah. Uh, I could just move closer back to the northwest and spend what little time I thought I had with him, particularly when he could still recognise me, yeah. you know, and all yeah. that horrible stuff. Before it turns us into the dark sort of side of the of the podcast with you guys today, <laughs> but that's one of the driving forces, you know, family. Yeah. Without sounding all Italian, that you know, family will be everything. It's yeah, you know, yeah. I always just think you don't realise how important they are. You take them all for granted at yeah. some point, and you know, a bit like learning Italian when your back's to the wall, you just kind of hope that you do the right <laughs> thing for one another. Yeah. yeah, the same thing happened to me. I was in Australia and then my mum got like a brain disease and I was like 
24 hours away. What well, I used to always think you're only 24 hours away from your front door, but that 24 hours when you get on that plane thinking that you don't know if you're your mum's going to be alive at the other side of it. It's like it's. I, I think a long that's what time. they say. You know, the world is getting a smaller place. Yeah. But when you've got a sick family member, it's not small enough. No. It's still a very big place. That yeah. flight felt yeah. like about a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when my father passed away six years ago, and I was still, still a weird experience being with somebody when they when they actually pass away. But uh, I was glad I was half an hour in a car to go to the nursing that's home yeah. and spend them last few hours with them. It's supposed to just get in a phone call and go, oh, I'll jump on a plane tomorrow and be home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's what brought me back to the UK. Yeah. Uh, And then once you're in the Northwest, uh, then I'll thought, you know, you settle down, you get married, you get the mortgage, you have a child, so they're all settled in school and you go, yeah, guess I'm back in the Northwest for the foreseeable future. (laughs) That's it, yeah. So uh, that's why I've I've ended up staying now uh, up here because you just put roots back down and, you know, you battle on with everything else. And then you mentioned there, just briefly, when you were talking about um, working on your ethos. So what is your ethos in golf then? So my ethos within golf is to treat everybody as an individual. Okay. Uh, not really having a method behind. There are general principles that we would look for in somebody's setup or motion. But I think to have somebody in who's six foot four and a well-built lad who goes to the gym compared to somebody who's five foot four and being a diver or a gymnast, you know, the different builds. So I, I'm a bigger fan of looking at somebody's build. So part of my studies as a, as a youth is studying PE is you get into body types. So you'd have endomorphs, ectomorphs, uh, mesomorphs, which is, a, which is a body shape. Uh, okay. And again, to think that everybody can swing the same way, uh, I think is just personally, I think it's <laughs> you, you, how can you have one size fits all? If you look at the world's top 10, yeah, you know, there's characteristics. If you look at them at impact, yeah, they can look similar at impact, but their journey to get to impact can be very different by just sheer fact of the length of their arms, the length of the legs, you know, the mobility that they have. We know how busy they are in the gym, working out on their physical conditioning. But so for me, the ethos is look at the individual, treat them as an individual, and see how we can maximise them, not maybe just fitting them into one size fits all. Yeah. You only have to look at John Ram versus Wolf, don't you? Then just the, the two completely different swings, but they both get the the ball they probably around do in meet the same way. way and impact, don't they? And at the ball, the same like like when if you're looking at numbers, for example, the numbers are probably very similar yeah. to how they strike the ball. But like I've said there, and you've said there, it's it? the route to get to there, the, how yeah. you get there, and you say it's you've got to adapt it. I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I think the route is the important thing. I think nowadays with with sat navs in cars, you can go and put in a route find that avoid motorways stay on A roads. So there are many ways to get to London, Yeah, but we can all still get to London our own way and then discuss who went the best way. Well, if we all get to our destination, none of us went the best way. We yeah. went our way. Yeah, yeah, And I think for me, that is a big, big part of getting and maximising the individual. Yeah. It, you know, it happens out on the course as well, doesn't it? Like you can nail one off the tee, miss the green, chip up, miss the putt, or you can have someone who tops it, tops it, thins it and chips in and you get the same score and you're just like, me that. What? That's, that was me. That was me. That was me versus him. So that's why you brought the GoPros out the other day. Then, but no, I think you're 100 right. I think the way we golf our ball around the course, you know, at the end of the day, it's a number on on a scorecard. Mm-hmm. We can get a bit too fascinated about positions that we almost adhere to in a golf swing, but the ball doesn't lie. Yeah. The ball tells what does what your club face tells it to do. 
And it's like many different routes to do that. And go and golf your golf. If you like, you know, I see plenty of golfers who look fantastic on a driving range. Strike the ball great. Yeah. No idea how to play golf. Yeah. You know, well, playing golf is a different skill. Yeah, I just don't know if you've seen on the British Open, they were doing a walk and talk interview and Patrick Harrington had a, I don't know if you've seen his interview, I think it was on Saturday or Sunday, um, and he was saying the, the similar things. It's like, you know, a lot of people get tuned up to, to the golf, but like in, he's seen people who don't strike the ball the best, but will shoot the best score, and then people who strike the ball the best and shoot the worst score. So it's not always about that, it's all about the mental side. So what what's your ethos from like a mental Perspective. So, so a number of years ago, I was quite fortunate through through football and I played a bit of basketball in the youth as well to, to be just be around great coaches. Uh, and I think the difference that makes the difference is your mindset. I think in golf particularly, we put a, a lot of emphasis on technique, that if the technique is there, nothing will go wrong. Well, we play a golf course, we get bad breaks. So how do you deal with your emotions? There's always going to be somebody who hits the ball further than you. So what? Get over it. Yeah. There'll always be somebody. We generally admire in other people what we can't do ourselves. Yeah. So if you're a great chipper of a golf ball, I look at, oh, it's all right for him. He's a great chipper. It's all right for you. You're a great bunker player. And then we get a little bit cheesed off about that. Yeah. We're not like, but I know where you're coming well, from. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we are the bogey boys, remember? Well, yeah, it's always it's always a safe put that from a couple of inches yeah, from a safe bogey. Exactly, that's it. But, but I think that's the key. I, I, uh, I had a golf coach a number of years ago, Paul Eels, oh, who yeah. plays on the seniors tour now. I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but at the time that I was working with Paul, he was one of only, I think it was under 10. It was either eight or nine golfers who'd won on the Challenge Tour, won on the European Tour, and then won on the Seniors Tour. Is this uh, Paul who's at Birkdale? Yeah, Paul's attached to Birkdale yeah, now. Paul, he's just, yeah. he's written a little bit further north up sort of Preston way. Yeah. He'll probably be on the phone later saying he's nowhere near Preston, but he definitely sounds like he's <laughs> yeah. from Preston way. He's definitely a Lancashire Northern monkey. Yeah. But what he said to me was, about golfing your own ball is, you know, there are many different ways there is it. Just find your way. And I think that was liberating for me because when I did finally get into golf, David Ledbetter was the was the man. And the remodeling around Nick Faldo had become the blueprint. You know, 14 different positions to be aware of before the club was at waist high. Oh, yeah. Well, as I said, from growing up down the south end of Liverpool and just going to a standard school, I can't think of 14 things in a day, <laughs> let alone before the golf club gets to halfway. Honestly, no. <laughs> so for me, is I, I had to keep it simpler because I couldn't coach that way either. My yeah. brain wouldn't be able to take to coach it, yeah. let alone to swing it that way. Cool. Uh, so the mindset for me, uh, I managed to meet Carl Morris a number of years ago, or Dr. Carl Morris. Uh, and he was doing a couple of seminars around some local golf courses with a guy called Jamie Edwards. Uh, and I'd, I'd been around Jamie for a number of years through my basketball connections. So again, there was a little in into sort of uh, Carl, uh, which brought me to doing some mind factor coaching with him, which really got me into the difference that makes the difference. Yeah. You know, lots of golfers hit it as well as the next golfer. But why does that guy go on to great things, or why does that girl go on to great things and make it, and the other person doesn't? And I think definitely how you view stuff that you think happens to you does it happen for a reason? The bad bounces, well, we all get them, but how do we cope with them? Yeah, yeah. Like you said about being having a perfect mechanics and technical technical ability, 
you can hit the most perfect shot. The wing can drag it a little bit. You can hit a, a hump going to a bunker. You can even hit the flag, which is your intended target, and end up in the water. Like We've it, seen that at the Masters every exactly. year. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's like the it's maddest game ever, isn't it? Get yeah. over it. Exactly. But most of us don't. We carry it. We feel hard done by still on the fifth when a bad thing happened on the second. So what? Well, the divot one's a big one still, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? The like people could should you get relief out of a divot? Where I don't know what your opinion of it is, but where of the opinion that you should? But there's a, there's a lot of people contrary to that saying like like you say, get on with it. You know, it's it's a bit of bad luck for that one hole, but when it can make a difference, then I think the purists will always say, you know. When you open a rule book, play the ball as it lies. Yeah. And if you can't play the ball as it lies, see the rules of golf. It's a tough one. I think yeah. if you've absolutely striped one down the fairway. It's the fairway thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, whatever your driving distance is, whether it's 150, whether it's 250 or whether it's 350, there's something that is a bitter pill to swallow that you're in the middle of a divot yeah. or the back end of a divot or whatever. Yeah. I've uh, said a few times, like where the pros lay up, like say short par fours or par five they got the zones where like most of the players are going battered, yeah. 100 and odd people for four days that there should be zones where if this is your layup zone and you're in it that take relief from the divot because it's messing with it's thought you're talking hundreds of thousands aren't you at that level i, I think you're right 100 percent. for tall players that could be the difference we know the difference that one shot makes keep your exactly. card lose you know, your cards yeah well I, I think even one shot i think uh ritif goosen years ago went off to do a bit of work with Zen Golf and found out that if he was one shot per four tournament round better, he'd earn another 100,000. Wow. A quarter of a shot per round. You know, It's almost like Formula One stuff here. You know, yeah, The top yeah. 10 in Formula One are separated by a second in qualifying. Yeah. There is a shot to the world nowadays over that sort of time. So I think you're right. Okay, amateur golf, you're playing it for the love of the game. But it's still very annoying. I know there's a few boys around here who've never had a bad lie, but take that as you will. <laughs> there's one here. <laughs> and somehow still makes bogey. Exactly. I've got my own rules of golf book in the back pocket. That's why. Uh-huh. <laughs> I met enough Italians who were absolutely phenomenal at that as well. <laughs> so where are we now with, with, with Sean's life then? We're in, back in the northwest. Back in the northwest. Where, where are we? So we're back in the Northwest. Uh, six and a half years ago, I applied for a job at Woodall Golf Club, which for the previous 120 plus years was known as Woodall Ladies. It was, yeah. Uh, that was born out of Royal Liverpool not allowing lady members to be a member there. Okay, interesting. So they give a small purse of money to a guy called Harold Hilton, who won the Open. Yes. At Royal Liverpool. So he designed our golf course. And the ladies had their piece of land up here on Bidston Hill, or right next to Bidston Hill on the outskirts of Oxton. And they developed their golf course for their needs. And pretty much to this day, has only had one major change to it when it went from nine holes to 18. It's still very short. It's still tight. It's still covered in heather. The greens are small. And it is still a challenge of golf, considering now we're all using titanium and carbon. But it's it was built. The concept was for ladies. Yeah. Right. So yeah. when did it so we change like six and a half years ago? So were you here when it was full ladies, or did you come after? No, I came after the change. The golf club had decided to, in essence, rebrand itself yeah. and drop the ladies' name, primarily out of financial reasons. Uh, they needed to open it up to a wider audience. There would be many golf societies who would just not visit 
after seeing ladies in the title. It wasn't for them. So they rebranded everything. Uh, I was the successful one who went through the interview and, and was given the opportunity to become their head pro. Yeah. Uh, and things have moved forward from there. So, yeah, I'm settled in the Northwest again. Uh, happy to be at Whittle Golf Club. Uh, the membership has grown. Uh, the course is in fabulous condition. We've got a wonderful head greenkeeper uh, and a good committee uh, around myself to help us drive the club forward. Some, what is, um, some, some nice clothes in the shop as well. Yeah. <laughs> Latest range. What is the ratio between men and women now then at uh, Whittle? Now it's 70, 70%, 75% men, 25% right. women. Okay. Uh, that goes on, which is probably more orthodox to most golf clubs. Yeah. If, uh, from a section from where it's been, which was obviously 100% ladies, and then uh, gents were allowed to join. I think from as early as the 1950s, uh, they were allowed to join. And uh, they had their first male captain, uh, not well into the 2000s. Uh, to come on board once the male section had grown enough to be able to justify or warrant having joint captains now. So that's what we have now. We don't have a lady or a gents captain. We have joint captains of the golf club. Joint, okay. Nice. Yes. Okay. I made that mistake in my first year when calling the lady captain. Good morning, Miss Lady Captain. And to be corrected, to say, <laughs> I think you'll find that I'm the captain of this golf club as well as. <laughs> oh. Mark got corrected when we done a podcast with um, Sophie Walker. Mark's like, so were you playing off the ladies' tees, was you? And she's like, like no, 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 it's not the ladies', not the ladies anymore. No more. It's the reds. It's, it's the reds. That's where it is and all that. World handicap That's one system. Of the new change. Yeah, big keys, gender neutral tees. Yeah. yeah. I run a couple of rules seminars at the start of the year and. Uh, pegged up a ball on the red tees and pegged up a number of golf balls, one being more than two club lengths back, one being outside the teeing zone uh, and one where I was stood outside and I asked the group what was wrong and somebody popped up, well, you're teeing off the red, Sean, and you're a bloke. Yeah. And I said, oh, we've fallen at the first hurdle. I think you'll find, <laughs> I think you'll find it's just the colour of tea. It is, yeah. Uh, so my reference point would always be go back to skiing. You go back to skiing, no matter what age, if you're five or 55 and start skiing, you start on a nursery slope. Yeah. It doesn't matter your age or your gender. You start at the beginning and work your way back up the slope. And I think that's what's helping the, the, the younger generation now because with these junior kids tours now, when you've got under six, under sevens, under eights playing tournaments, they're playing off tees sometimes just in front of the green and the, the tees are based on age and ability. So it is sort of making golf more inclusive. You couldn't ask a seven, eight-year-old to go and start playing off the reds and the blue tees at a golf club, could you? No. Uh, we have we have the Super Sixers here. Yeah. So, which is, again, for some kids uh, of an age, you, know, you can realise how long the course is uh, when you're only, you know, four foot one. It's it's a lot of steps to get around. It is. Going on. So, having the junior tees, we have a blue course as well for our juniors. We'll, we'll run some Super Sixers. But, again, just giving them a chance to feel that they can reach the green in a couple of shots and then feel encouraged to go again. You know, if you're standing on a hole that you just simply can't reach in, in what you think is a fair number of shots, why would you want to come back and do it again? Yeah. You know, so opening it up to make sure that, you know, if you're going with your granddad, they can go a little bit further back. If you're going with your uncle, they can go further back and we can all enjoy the game off different tees. Compete as well, can't you? Yeah, you can physically make your birdie or make your par rather than saying, oh, I'm going to have to change this to a par six, par seven for me because I'm so far back. You made the birdie. Would you change the name of the podcast? Probably, yeah. 
still waiting for it. That's when I start be, being called the Eagle Boys when I, when I start practicing. But what you call it, it's like if you were eight playing off the normal tees, you're probably not making a birdie till you're 16, realistically. I think you'd probably just not even play till you were 16 oh, exactly, because yeah. it would just be that despondent. If you look at other sports, you know, if you play basketball, the nets are lower. The yeah. court's small. If you play football, you're playing smaller goals and the pitch isn't as big. Yeah. If you play tennis, the net is lower. The rackets are bigger. The courts are smaller. Most of the sports have done something. Even in rugby, they don't get tattled now to avoid the injuries. They have just tag up to a certain age. Yeah. Golf had done very little really over the years to become a little bit more inclusive for the yeah. youngsters to sort of play. Definitely, I was trying yeah. to think if when I first ever ran, I think I was 13 or 12 and I think I just hit the, hit the normal seat. What did you do? Did you, the did yellows, you? yeah. Yeah, I yeah. just hit the yellows at Bootlum, got on with it. I went to Allerton. I know Allerton's a bit shorter than, than, than some of them. It um, wasn't no like in middle of fairways and all that, was it? Never, no. It was, what, always... was it like for you? No options. Oh, you didn't even start until so you were 30, did you? Or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a surprise, I'm only 32 now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't think there was any option. And all You mentioned at the start today about equipment. Yeah. And you mentioned about you know how you grow ping of being huge of of when you grow you go and get new shafts to be put in your golf club at no extra cost you commit to one set and they will will update the shafts for you through your growth spurts and that's become more important you know yeah. coaches understand growth spurts now as well yeah but in the day you would just get some of these secondhand clubs somebody would take the grips off them, cut all the shafts down and put the grips back on. Yeah. Well, that's just made that shaft a lot stiffer. Now we get that up in the air, sunshine, and enjoy the game and be happy you've got a set. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's easy for one generation to say it was much harder. But it, I think, you know, 99 point whatever are going to just have fun out of golf. Yeah. So if you've got a load of equipment, a load of different tees, a load of different options to make it more fun, why wouldn't you do it more? That's it. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're right, yeah. And that's obviously they're the, they're the future of the sport, aren't they, as well? We need people to carry on playing, otherwise we'll have no golf, will we? I think the future of the sport, we know how divisive live golf has been. Yeah. And I get asked that at least 10 times a day in work about my thoughts on live. I usually try and direct them back to how successful cricket's been. Yeah. And how they've invented many different forms. You know, the original game was then called, you know, Cricket in pyjamas when they had the first 2020 game and they've got names and numbers on the back of the shirt because they no longer just wore pure white. Yeah. And then they've got the 100. And I think that whoever was behind the marketing in cricket, what a job to get that out to a different demographic. And I think golf livers at least struck up conversations about golf yeah, and about shotgun starts, about having 54-hole tournaments, about being able to see everybody's on the course at the same time so the action is coming in fast. And we said before about um, subscription TV, live in its first year. It was on YouTube. It was free to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I think it still is now, isn't it? On the, the live app, it's on. It's on it. that and that CW. You can still watch it on, on YouTube. Yeah, app, yeah. yeah, and I think anything that gives you removes the barrier of cost, even from watching. You know, yeah. it's not everybody can subscribe to Sky yeah. to watch it. Although Sky have done phenomenal things to improve the experience of watching golf, I think you know that is next level stuff. There is still a barrier there. There's many, many of my peers who will tell me they took up golf because they watched Nick Faldo sinker put. They watched Sandy Lyle come out of the bunker on the 18th of Augusta. The next ones, I watched Tiger Woods chipping on the back of the 16th of Augusta. Yeah. But if all of them are just solely on 
a subscription point of view, we may miss some opportunities where people are just not exposed to it. Yeah, it's a good yeah. thing where social media comes in now as well, because even if you don't watch it, like there's always, like if you follow the DP World Tour or the PJ Tour or the Live, clips, yeah. you always get little clips of the highlights. And like it's it's always, if you follow a few golf pages, Instagram or whatever platform will show you more golf videos. So you are always constantly consuming it. Exactly. I think that's been the, the uh, turning point that you can't, access it everywhere and anywhere yeah yeah and i think the concert concept's a good one as well obviously i know the bmw um wentworth have been doing it for a while haven't they having a concert and a show i know live a big on having a concert after every event but even like the women's open this year they've got ellie Goulden playing for the first time on the saturday night so it's you no know, entice more young girls to go and watch and then you go and see the concert as well you can buy ticket and concert show at the same time yeah, well, racing have been doing it for a number of years, haven't they? Yeah, you get yeah. your Friday night racing and then you'll go and watch a concert after it, keep people on site. Yeah. I know DJ Spoony was DJing on the range at Wentworth as was, far yeah. back as six, seven years ago. Yeah. So when you think, you know, quiet, please, well, you've got a bit of R&B banging out in the background <laughs> and you're having a warm-up, but it's amazing on. Yeah. Maybe Carl Morris's theories on this of improving focus. What music? Exactly. <laughs> well, then if you try to, like, obviously... It's probably never going to go this far, but if you tried to do that sort of concept aspect, uh, say the open, like the first, if you get there for the first tee, if it's half six, people aren't coming in till nine, half nine at night. Like if someone was there that whole day and then try and have a concert after, there's just no chance. Whereas live, it's four hours, bink, and then you're off to watch Jesse J or whatever. Yeah, it's not a bad day, that would it? Yeah, well, it was great, wasn't it? I'd sign up for that. Yeah. I think you're right. I think the, the, the time scale that golf takes, particularly on major tournaments, mm. and I think when you look at majors like the Open, uh, I don't think Augusta would ever be their cup of tea no, to definitely. be able to go down that line. But I think golf has to look beyond its standard four-day tournament yeah. and have a look for different versions. Like, I refer back to cricket again, a 20-over game, a 50-over game. You look at the Indian Cricket League, how successful that's been. Just yeah. different formats under the floodlights. You know, we've got great floodlight facilities in Dubai and in Turkey. You yeah. know, having an event that goes through that time of day would be an interesting concept. Made for TV. We've had the matches where Mickelson's played Woods. But just expanding that what more. the stadium golf coming, haven't we, next year in January with Tiger yeah. and Rory? They've, um, I can't remember what the name of that company's called. TGL, but isn't it? Is it TGL, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. They've start, they're going to do that concept of stadium golf, aren't they? And they've got quite a few superstars signed up for that, so it'll be interesting to see Which is, a, I think, a is. big expansion on the 17th at the Waste Management, isn't it? Which yeah. is just an enclosed hole where even the caddies are having a race yeah. up uh, to the green and then somebody holding one, there's all the beer being thrown all over it. Yeah. But it sells. It's different. I think just four days yeah. with a cut, it becomes too samey. It will still always have its place. Yeah. But some of the other things definitely has to change to engage that younger market. Finding the balance in it. You know, keep the traditions because we love the traditions, but there also needs to be a, a way to engage the, the people who are not engaged at the moment. But I think with the traditions, I would say 80% of new inquiries that I get for a golf lesson will always put at the end of it, what dress code do we need to wear? Right. I'm yeah. like, you're coming for a golf lesson. I couldn't care less. As long as you can swing any, I couldn't care less what you wear for your first golf lesson. Yeah. But the panic is, am I expected to dress a certain way? Will I be able to walk on the premises if I've got yeah. tracksuit bottoms on? You're absolutely yeah. fine. Just yeah. come along for your golf lesson. You will want to buy some of the gear because we all want to fit into what everybody else is doing. But at the start, don't put that barrier in the way for them. 
just yeah. let them be exposed to what is a fabulous sport to play. Mm. Yeah, because otherwise, then it's just that extra bit of cost on that you're paying. You've however much the lessons are, then you've got to buy you you rig out a on in the shop if anyone needs to come and do that. And then you've got to buy your clubs. It's just an it's just it's an effort in it going it, the shop. Like it's yeah. it's back to that. It's an expensive sport expense, to play. Effort, you know, yeah. from you're equipment, right. from membership, even from green fees. Of, and we've said earlier on today, you know, green fees are quite cheap in the UK. However, it is still a cost. Of course, yeah. And you've got to have, and it's disposable income. You know, uh, a, a little business friend of mine once told me, it's a discretionary buy. You yeah. don't need anything from you. You don't need to play golf. You don't need a golf lesson. You don't need a new shirt, however good it looks. You don't need it. <laughs> yeah. It's a want. So if we're in the want industry, you better make sure it's fun. Yeah. You better yeah, make course. sure it's enjoyable. Because I'm not going to spend money if I'm cheesed off or just depressed or being told all the time I can't do something. Yeah. Get them in first. Have a bit of fun. Make them a bit happy. And then I think they'll invest in the game because they'll want to get the most out of it. Yeah. One million percent, yeah. Obviously, it's been great to hear your story. And obviously, you've got a lot of experience, Sean, going, going through the years and what you've told us there. But there'll be a lot of young younger golfers now who are probably going to take this, a similar route where they want to go through PJ. What advice have you got for anybody who's starting that journey now who would want to get into that? What, what would you what would you tell them? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for using the word experienced instead of old. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's been a real improvement for me. So thank you for that. Uh, the second part, I think it's like in, in any sport, you've got a dream, go for it. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. Yeah. And if the PGA fits into that from a training point of view, great. You know, the weather's not great in this country. I think a lot of the time... Getting abroad is a huge bit of advice, particularly if you've got to be a player. I think, you know, four months being in the UK wearing a snooze and a bobble hat is not conducive to, you know, homing in a putting stroke and, and being able to get your distances right at minus four with wind chill factor. Yeah. So I definitely think getting to warmer climbs, particularly in our sports, is, is a definite must yeah. if you can. But, you know, like anything, follow a dream. Who, how, I always look at it, how dare anybody else tell you you can't do it? Somebody's got to do it. Why not you? It's been done, hasn't it? Yeah. By someone, so... Yeah, why, why not, not you? you? And Snap. I think, yeah, but I think for a lot of people, they aren't told. Might get back at it then. Well, <laughs> we'd like to reiterate and put a caveat on, except you. Because <laughs> <laughs> that ship has sailed. But... <laughs> Bogey boys Don't dare no... let him tell you you can't do it. <laughs> exactly, Bogey boys yeah. make no money. Yeah. <laughs> it was the old quote, wasn't it? Three things that don't survive on tour. Go on. Pros who puff for pars, caddies who think they're superstars, and dogs that chase cars. <laughs> Three certainties in life that won't survive. I'm definitely a superstar caddy, like, <laughs> these days. So moving forward then, obviously, you're, you're at Will now. What's the plans for the future? Obviously, you've got your teaching facility there. Like, you've, I think you mentioned something about you changed the snooker room to a, to a gym, which is obviously that's more modern, isn't it? Yeah, so what we've what we've got planned for the rest of this short summer that we've had and into the autumn and winter is we've got a new short game development uh, where we're basically putting an astroturfed zone down there so we don't get the divot piles up as much and we can teach short game for longer. The simulator room where you can go and play golf. Obviously, we do the basic stuff that I think most pros do, which is coaching there and do club yeah. fits. But we took a decision at the start of this year to get a TPI fitness coach on board. Nice. Uh, her name's Charlotte. And 
I've worked with Charlotte for a number of years on my fitness. Uh, I don't know what camera angle or on, but you probably won't be able to tell that, but I am astoundingly <laughs> fit. And uh, this microphone is heavier than it looks. Uh, so Charlotte uh, had a base at a driving range on the Whittle at Morton Hills. And Morton Hills, like a lot of golf centers, was looking to expand. And therefore, she was losing the room that she had uh, for her TPI uh, clients. So she mentioned this to me. So I approached the golf club, who very, very forward and supportive committee decided that we should get rid of our snooker room, uh, which was pretty redundant. So we've rigged that out now with high-impact flooring, a little bit of weights up there, free weights in Charlotte, gives assessments and personal training up there and developing into groups of how we loosen up, how we warm up before we play golf, Uh, a bit of injury avoidance up there as well, which helps particularly some of our ageing clients at the golf club. So it's been warmly received yeah. at Whittle Golf Club, her involvement. It's brilliant, then. Yeah. So apart from that, like any other little changes that, that are going to happen in the future or what? Are you still playing PJ events now or what's the future looking like for Mr. Bailey? Uh, well, from the course side of it, I've been quite fortunate to make some, I wouldn't say course design changes because we are limited. We are small and surrounded by houses, but moving tees, putting in some new bunkers, removing some trees, putting in some trees, planting some new ones just to try and make it more relevant. And for me, it's just to to carry on giving the best service that I can. Still love coaching. Still try and get out and play uh, in a number of events every year. Uh, two reasons for that. I, I do generally still enjoy playing golf and seeing if I can still get that ball in the hole in as few shots as possible. Yeah. Uh, and the second part is I really do think it helps my coaching. Yeah. Uh, Empathy-wise, yeah. I know what it's like if you've got a good score. I know what it's like if you've got a bad score. I've had more bad scores than good scores and how you deal with it. So me trying to work on my game uh, definitely, hopefully, helps everybody else go, I know what you're going through because I went through it last week and that's yeah. why I'm reshafting this golf club. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that was Shane Lowry, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so look, Pleasure. Speaking to you, Sean, thanks very much for taking the time and very much sharing your that. story with us. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will take a lot from that. Thank you for the opportunity to come on. Oh, thanks a lot. And I will be confirmed. Great product you're selling, boys. Thank yeah, you. Perfect. Keep up the good work. You too. Cheers, Sean. Cheers. Thanks.